the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Who else? Sometimes it comes down to a tough choice, but um, this week we have a slam dunk winner, even though there were plenty of worthwhile candidates who might have won this award in another week. And now it's time for the Jerk of the Week, starring John Steigerwald. And how are you going to give it to anybody other than E. Jean Carroll, the woman who was traumatized by being sexually assaulted in a department store dressing room by Donald Trump 30 years ago and was awarded $83 million by a jury, all of whom, by the way, could have been candidates for this award, but uh, E. Jean was so traumatized by having to resist thinking about the, uh, revisit, I should say, the the horror of being sexually assaulted, that she struggled to uh, confide in Rachel Maddow about how she might, you know, use the money. You've talked about using some of Trump's money you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, Rachel. Yes. Tell me. I had such such great ideas for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel, you and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Rachel. Penthouse and uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing in France? No? Oh, all right, all right. Okay. That's a joke. Although, if if me fishing in France could yeah. do something for women's rights, I would take the hit. You know, I would obviously uh, t- take one for the team. I All right, let me, let me, uh, <laughs> as if, as if you need persuasion in that regard. Oh, boy. They really got a lot of laughs out of that, didn't they? And m- remember, she, by the way, claimed that she was raped. Uh, the jury didn't um, go along with that or didn't believe that part of it. But this is a woman who is so traumatized that by because she was not just assaulted, she was raped. She couldn't remember what year it was, uh, and the designer dress she said she was wearing wasn't available in the year that she said she was wearing it. And her description of the assault was almost identical to an episode in a show that she watched all the time. Um, here's hoping she never sees a dime of the money. But if she doesn't, she'll at least know that her BS... Got her name, the AM1250, the answer, Jerk of the Week. When we come back, we're going to talk to Christine Flowers, who's a conservative columnist in Philadelphia, but also an immigration attorney. She says both parties are failing on what to do down there at the border, and she says that impeaching Mayorkas is stupid and won't solve the problem. We'll talk to her in our second half hour We're going to finish out the week uh, talking to Christian Toto, a conservative Hollywood reporter, about the 2024 Academy Award nomination. Stick around. 
Well, I think it's uh, safe to say that immigration has become the number one topic in this election campaign, and we still have, what, 10 months left, nine months, whatever it is. And the fact that it is uh, the number one topic says a lot about how bad it is, because it would have to be bad to have everybody caring about it so much. Christine Flowers is a columnist for the Delco Daily Times. That's in Philadelphia, but she's also an immigration attorney, and she's been to the border. She joins us now. Christine, how are you? Hey, my darling. She also has bronchitis. So if I start coughing in the middle, <laughs> excuse me, in the middle of this, you'll, apo- you'll please excuse me. But uh, yes, yes, I am. I am an immigration lawyer for the yeah. last 30 years. Good. Well, I uh, I had the, um, what they call it, the rapid flu A, uh, and I wanted somebody to shoot me about two or three weeks ago. So I know where you're coming well, what from. Is, what is that about this thing? They never, I got the flu shot. They didn't tell me that there were, you know, that there was honor roll flu shot and then the regular flu shot, which is uh, like <laughs> there was strain A and strain B. And I, I have a friend who got the flu who had the shot, and they said, oh, yeah, well, you got the wrong flu shot. Was yeah, well, it Russian roulette? We had to guess which flu shot we wanted? Well, it's funny. The the, um, the doctor, I went to MedExpress, the, the doctor told me that it's a, it's, it is a crapshoot. Um, they, <laughs> they come up with the shot hoping that the shot that they give everybody matches the flu that ends up showing up. And I think is what he said to me is that um, the, the the wrong flu showed up. So the, the, the shots are – I've, I've never had a flu shot, so I don't, I don't worry about it. But um, I had it, and it was bad. So I hope you're feeling better. I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to come on and, uh, and be a uh, trooper here and uh, try to work your way through it. Um, so, um, Anytime for you. What? Oh, thanks. What, what does uh, an immigration attorney do? Uh, pulls her hair out, wrings her hands, <laughs> screams to the heavens. Yeah. Uh, well, let, let me put it this way. I started practicing immigration law full-time in 1990, when was it? 1995. In fact, January of 1995, so we're looking at 29 years. Next year will be 30. Um, at that time, it was... It was complicated. Uh, you know, it was, it was difficult for people to get their green cards, but nothing compared to what it's like today. And there, the, the problems at the border were nothing compared to what you see today either. You had just come out of about nine, ten years prior one of the largest amnesties that we've ever seen, and ironically enough, it was under a Republican president, it was under President Reagan, where in 1986, there was basically a wholesale amnesty of people who were illegally in the United States and who had, who could prove that they had been physically present before 1982. And many, many Hundreds of thousands of people um, were legalized that way and got their green cards, which caused and they were virtually all of them were Mexicans. And that caused a huge backlog in visas for people from other parts of the world. So if you look at the backlogs today, if you're a Mexican national and your sister or brother is trying to file for you to get your green card legally, you're looking at a 20-year wait before you can get your green card because so many of the spots were taken up by Mexican nationals years ago, almost 40 years ago. Um, And that's for people who are trying to do it legally, who are outside of the country. Yeah, 20 years. And that's not as long as, um, in, I think, for the Filipinos, 
they also have a very, very long backlog. Indians have a long backlog. There are the, the four countries that I can think of off the top of my head that have actual uh, weights that are different from anywhere else in the world are India, the Philippines, mainland China, and um, and Mexico. And all of those have specific reasons, backgrounds, because nationals from those countries were given special benefits uh, in, I guess, under prior law or whatever. Um, although China's a little strange because of the Chinese Exclusion Act that we had uh, years ago. Anyway, so if you're trying to do it legally, it the, the backlogs are ridiculous. It's taking so long. Unless you marry a U.S. citizen, then you're in like Flint. <laughs> it's just basically, if you marry a U.S. citizen and you enter the United States legally, you can get your green card here without a problem in a couple of months, a few mm-hmm. months. If you enter illegally, which I think most people are looking at the problem of those who have crossed over the border illegally. Um, it's much more difficult for you to be able to legalize your status in the United States. And I understand the anger on the part of a lot of Americans who don't deal in immigration on a regular basis, looking at those who've crossed the border without permission and who are seeking some kind of benefit. And they may themselves have family members who are stuck outside of the country waiting for the consulate to call them for an interview, who can't get tourist visas. And they say, well, why should some benefit be given to people who did it the wrong way, who jumped across the border? That's a very sympathetic position. And as a conservative, I, I completely and fully empathize with that. There's this sense of injustice that, you know, you jump the line. How dare yeah. you demand some kind of benefit? That, and I, and I agree when you're talking about um, economic, people who came here to work. On the other hand, there is that special category of people who are refugees. Mm-hmm. And not every person who is fleeing persecution in their home country can get the right documentation to be able to enter the country legally. The problem is determining who is an actual refugee, um, who is fleeing the Taliban, who is fleeing um, whatever the conditions are in um, Ukraine, in Yemen, in Burma, in in countries where there really is established persecution, who's doing that and who's the guy who's coming to the border and saying, oh, I'm persecuted, but is really just coming here because he wants a job. Mm -hmm. That's so hard to do. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that the Border Patrol have because they're doing triage, John. And God bless Governor Abbott. Uh, You know, (laughs) I'm probably an outlier in the immigration bar, but I find that what Governor Abbott is doing is actually quite beneficial from two perspectives. Number one, he's actually trying to do something within the legal parameters to stop this overflow of immigration at the, you know, at the Rio Grande, at um, Eagle Pass, McAllen, um, San Antonio, all of these border towns where it's becoming more and more difficult to stem the chaos. But also, he's doing great PR for those border states because, you know, we live in Pennsylvania. I live in Philadelphia. You live outside of Pittsburgh. Um, we don't deal with the border crisis. We get the overflow when people come here, and there are a lot of immigrants, undocumented and documented, in Pennsylvania. They love Pennsylvania. You have a friend in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't um, – uh, Pittsburgh, it, it, I just don't – 
Maybe it's an issue that I'm not aware of, but I just don't, it just doesn't seem to be an issue at all here. We in Philly don't have, <coughs> I beg your pardon, we in Philly also don't have a huge problem um, with illegal immigration in the sense that, yes, there are large populations that are undocumented, but they've pretty much blended into the rest of society. Um, but, you, you know, when you're talking about, again, McAllen, Texas, Arizona, mm-hmm. uh, Nogales, Arizona, you're talking about New Mexico, uh, Calif- Southern California, and again, Texas, Texas is suffering the brunt of this. It Those states have been dealing with this for as long as I've been practicing immigration law and well before that. And the rest of us in the rest of the, you know, especially here in Philadelphia, blue Philadelphia, as Democrat as you can possibly get, and we turn up our noses at those poor people down at the border and say, oh, they're all bigots. They're horrible people. They don't want to let these poor people in and have a better life. And yet, when they're bused to these cities like Philly, like Boston, like New York, like uh, what was Chicago. it, Martha's Vineyard. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I loved it when the people in Martha's Vineyard, they, uh, you know, when they had the buses going up there, they're like, "Oh my goodness, what shall we do? We have illegal aliens on our doorstep." They lasted about twenty were, minutes there. They did, and then the hilarious part is afterwards, there you know, you had the people being interviewed saying, "Oh, it was so wonderful to meet them. Yeah, yeah, they changed my life in those eight and a half minutes <laughs> that I knew them." Well, it's just they're just full of it. They're well, hey, full of it. Hey, so, Chris, yeah, Christine, what Adam's doing is good. Well, well what uh, stuck out with me with everything you just said there is that 20-year thing. Because I'm trying to think how annoyed I would be if I was in year 19 <laughs> of going through, the, going through the process legally and I was watching people come across knowing that they're going to get to stay here. And, and, I, and they're, they're going to be probably the same as I am when it all is said and done. And I waited 19 years, and they just walked across the border. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what my colleagues sometimes, some of my colleagues, there are some very balanced, common-sense, fair-minded immigration lawyers out there in the private bar who do understand how unfair it is to tell one group of people, you're going to wait, and another group of people who have been a little more proactive and less you know, respectful of our laws and more savvy and more clever in being able to make it to the United States and say to them, you know what, you're here. We can see you. We can, we can hear you. We, we, you know, you're more of a problem because you're actually physically present and we have to do something with you. So we're going to craft laws that are going to make it easier for you to stay here. But the problem with that, John, beyond the fact that it does seem unfair to those who really are trying to do it the right way, even though I put right in air quotes, because there is no feasible system that we have right now. You know, you've got a 20-year backlog. That means there is no system that's working. But what I'm saying is when you legalize people who are here en masse, when you give work authorization, when you, you know, el permiso, when you do these things, you are in many ways encouraging more illegal immigration. And that's bad for the people who are doing the immigrating because they are usually, in many cases, human traffic. They are being trafficked by coyotes. They are being abused. I know of people who have personally been abused on the trip from 
Well, let, let me Guatemala let, City yeah, up to the border. Let me stop you there because I, uh, I, um, I t- could you just and you, and, and you went to the border, so you you've seen it. You know, been down yeah. there to look at it. Um, can you just maybe give me a um, a description of a person being trafficked? Who who okay. would that, who would that be, and how would it happen? Well, you have people who are, for example, if someone feels threatened in their home country, if and they're in the the northern triangle, which is called which is includes El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, those are the three countries that have the highest rate of <laughs> gang activity in Central America. And also, they happen to have um, the highest rates of uh, femicide, domestic uh, violence, women being killed by their partners. Um, so let's say that you're afraid and you want to get out of that area. You can't just take a plane to the United States. You don't want to move to El Salvador if you're from Guatemala, if you're from Honduras, because the conditions are basically the same. You don't want to go to Mexico because then you have the drug traffickers there and you have a lot of violence. In it, It's not that much of a difference in Mexico. So what you do is you go and you pay someone, a coyote, to essentially take you into the United States. And when you're doing that, you don't pay the whole amount. You basically, you, you create an indentured servitude for yourself. You, your family pays a certain amount of money, but then once you get to the United States and you're trafficked, you are basically taken on foot by caravan, you're mistreated, these coyotes are horrific criminals. They are drug traffickers. They are horrible people. They, once they get you to the United States and they have ways, they, they pay off border agents. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm completely aware of the illegality and the hand washing the hand. Um, you know, we have some very unethical people working for the U.S. government as well. Otherwise, the whole process wouldn't be working. So you have people who are making it into the United States. And then once they get here, they are basically in bondage for the next 10 years because they have to work and they have to pay back the money that the coyotes that was advanced. And what happens if, if they, they don't pay don't, it back? If, yeah, there you go. You're one step ahead of me. If they don't, um, family members could be killed. Family members could be kidnapped. Family members could be raped. There's always a family member left behind mm-hmm. as insurance. And so this this is any kind of encouragement to you know to to basically saying to people yeah come into the United States we'll give you work authorization we'll do this and that it is encouraging that activity that movie last summer sound of freedom there was there were there was obviously some hollywood hollywoodization yeah. of yeah. the film but by and large what i saw was accurate so, uh, you know, my as as I don't want to say I'm a humanitarian because that's like it's like saying, oh, aren't I a great person? I'm right. not. But my concern beyond politics is the welfare of the people who are caught up in this in this mess itself. To be really honest, no one wants to abandon 
their country. No one wants to abandon their family, their traditions. They don't come here on a lark and say, yeah, you know, hey, this will be fun to go on vacation and walk, you know, barefoot across yeah. the desert. No, it's it's something, and there's a lot of misrepresentations made to them as well. And excuse me, excuse me, that was really unpleasant. So, uh, you know, my focus is there's the humanity of these these poor individuals who are being trafficked. There is this this sense on, you know, the, the part of so many legislators that it's a political uh, football yeah, that I, we I, can just kick around back and forth for political purchase. Hey, hey, Christine, I have less than a minute left, and I wanted to make sure I asked you this. Uh, will sure. impeaching Mayorkas do any good? I don't think so, because, uh, to be quite frankly, he's irrelevant. He is ineffective. He is, uh, you know, even if he were doing his job at full throttle, he wouldn't be able to change any of the policies at the border. It's so much of this really lies with Congress. And I really wish the GOP would understand that legislation is necessary. They always did. The party of Reagan always was proactive in this. And now basically just saying, no, we want Joe Biden to do this, um, you know, in this election year. Joe Biden is incapable. He is a neutered politician. We need the people who understand what's going on. I like Langford's um, you know, proposal. I liked, I thought that was a good bipartisan deal. No, a lot of conservatives disagree, but something needs to be done. And just doing a show trial of Mayorkas, that's going to make people feel good. And, you know, yeah. talk radio can talk about it and I can write op-eds about it, but it's not going to change anything at the border. Hey, uh, Christine, I hope you feel better. And you made it through, Thank you, my dear. and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, and I and I, Love it. I will be. I'm sure I'm going to want to talk to you again as this story goes along. But thanks. Oh, I'm here. Just oh. let me know. Maybe right. I'll come out to Pittsburgh and hang with you in the studio. All right, that's Christine Flowers, uh, Delco Daily Times. We'll be right back. I'm a movie guy. I like going to movies. I rarely watch them at home on TV. I should say I never do. Um, I like the theater. Um, as long as it's during the day and there are no crowds. Um, but I do like going to movies, and the Academy Award nominations came out recently. I've seen a few of the movies. Uh, Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com has probably seen more of them. I mean, he watches movies for a living. He joins us now. Christian, thanks for coming on again. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, so um, one movie I didn't see and will never see is Barbie. Um, <laughs> it, it seems like there was a lot of controversy around that one. There was, and it's a bit silly, honestly, because, listen, A, I didn't think it was very good. I thought it was overrated. But, listen, it made a ton of money. It connected with a lot of people, and I certainly respect that. And I believe it got eight Oscar nominations. That's not bad. But it didn't get a nomination for Best Director, which that's Greta Gerwig. And Margot Robbie, the star, didn't get a Best Actress nomination. And that sent all of Hollywood and all the critical chattering class into a tizzy because you have to have all those nominations and then some. So <laughs> that was the biggest fallout from the Oscar nominations. Again, very silly. When a film is nominated for Best Picture, it has seven other award possibilities. That's what you want from a movie, and I think it was more than it even deserved. Well, it's, it's interesting that um, Margot Robbie was good enough as Barbie to get all those awards, but she wasn't good enough to be nominated for an Academy Award. She's Barbie, right? She is Barbie. I mean, she's a very good actress, and she's been nominated before. And listen, the bottom line is that with most categories, except for the Best Picture, 
you look at five nominees, there's a lot of competition. Uh, there's a lot of talented people out there in Hollywood. We may disagree with politics, but they are good at what they do. And, you know, who's to say that she was the best or among the best mm-hmm. or the other actresses weren't? I mean, which one of those other actresses do you kick out? You know, that seems a little bit harsh, too. So, you know, everyone should take a deep breath. Uh, I think, you know, Barbie soaked up all the oxygen last year. I think it will continue to do so. I think Margot Robbie will be nominated down the road. She is a good actress. It, it just seems silly. And also, do we need to bully the Oscar voters into picking everything that we want them to pick? I mean, it seems a little, a little bit silly. When you heard, as a guy who does, who is a critic, uh, when you heard there was a movie about Barbie in the works, and when it came out, did you think you'd be talking about it as Academy Award material? Barbie? I, cer- I certainly didn't. You know, this has been uh, uh, talked about for quite some time. Amy Schumer was originally going to star as Barbie. Oh, boy. And then she left the project. So this is something, listen, it's a no-brainer. Uh, they make movies out of toys and games, and, and yeah. you name it. They make a, you know, So I understood the whole theory behind it. Uh, when I saw the movie, I thought, well, this really started in an interesting, clever fashion. I laughed a few times. I thought it was colorful and interesting. And I thought the movie just kept going downhill. That's just one person's opinion. But I don't think it deserves to be in the Oscar race. I don't think it should be deserved to be in this conversation, honestly. Uh, the screenplay was just filled with lectures. And it just it's kind of movie you just didn't know where to go at the end. Of the, Listen, I, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. I was saying, I'm in the minority here. I mean, even some a lot of critics liked it. People certainly loved it. The I forget the numbers. They were just off the off the charts. It was the best biggest movie last year by far. So listen, we always talk about the Oscars as being detached from the populist uh, opinion, and this is a case where they're giving a movie that was the biggest box office sensation a lot of nominations. So maybe that's a a course correction in a way, and, and who cares what I say? Well, I used to do a, uh, a little session called Stag at the Movies um, when I did a, an Internet talk show about 10 years ago, and I would come on every Friday and talk about uh, the movies that I've seen or I was about to see, and I, I had my own con- way of kind of rating them, and I, I, you know, if it was a chick flick, I would say, okay, listen, um, if your wife wants you to go with her and you don't want to get in the fight, it's not worth fighting over. Um, and then I would say if um, if she's threatening, a, I, it would eventually get to the point where I'd say if she's threatening to divorce you, if you don't go to the movie, don't go. Still don't go. I mean, it's, it's that bad. So I saw Barbie and that's what I thought of. This is one that if my wife said, listen, we've been married a long time. If you don't take me to this movie, I'm leaving you. She'd be gone. So, uh, you know, that's that, it seems like a chick flick. It is to a degree. Listen, the messaging behind the film was very uh, feminist in nature. And yeah. I think that is catnip for a lot of critics who are left of center by and large. And so I think even those who might have been now and might have thought this was not the demographic and they didn't grow up with Barbie dolls, they appreciated <laughs> that part of it. Listen, they're, they're, when you think about a Barbie movie, I, I thought this film took some creative risks. I thought it had some ingenuity behind it. I think it had a lot of talented people on screen. Ryan Gosling is always good. Margot Robbie is an exceptional actress. So, I, you know, I understand it. But the one thing I will say about the movie is that it, it made going to the movies again an event. You know, women dressed up. They, they wore pink. They, they brought their girlfriends. And, you know, the movie guy in me loves that. You know, I mean, that, that's what I'm, this is all about. And, 
you know, I, I can complain about the quality of the films and things like that, but this movie did bring people back to theaters and after the pandemic and after streaming and all the reasons why we don't go to the movies, uh, this gave us an excuse to go to the movies, along with Oppenheimer, by the way, which is also highly nominated, deservingly so. And uh, that made a lot of money, too. So that was that was a, a nice turn of events. So here here's the list. American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. I only saw three of them. Uh, American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, and Oppenheimer. Um, of the uh, that list I just read, which one would you vote for for the best picture? Gosh, um, it's a tough year. I thought that Oppenheimer was pristine and perfect, and yet it felt a little emotionally cold to me. And having said that, I thought The Holdovers, which is not a great movie, was a very good movie with wonderful yeah, I performances. I thought it was tremendous, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it made me feel... It's the kind of movie you look back on and it grows in your estimation. And I love that about films where you think, oh, gosh, I remember those characters. I remember those scenes, those moments, the laughs, the dramatic bits. And, and it makes me want to see it again. So that might be my favorite this year. I, I liked elements of a lot of films. of The Poor Things was very funny, even though it went off the rails, too. I thought Past Lives was a beautiful film about uh, second chances and love and regret. And then I thought Zone of Interest was the concept was so fascinating. We're looking at a family living just next door to a concentration camp and going on with their lives as if there wasn't a, an abomination happening, you know, a hundred yeah. yards from their house. I thought the idea was brilliant, but I did. I think the execution was a little bit, there was just wasn't much of a story there beyond the, beyond the gimmick. So, you know, I'm, listen, these are interesting films they are worth discussing. And the Oscars at the end of the day are about, Hey, Go see that movie. Check this one out. If you miss this, this is certainly worth your while. I think for the most part, these films will will check those boxes. Yeah, I, I told everybody uh, that uh, to, to go see Holdovers, uh, the Holdovers. I thought that was good. But uh, what, what's interesting, and we're talking to Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com, um, how are you supposed – it just seems weird that you are expected to pick uh, something uh, – the best movie – when you have a choice between Oppenheimer about the about the development of the atomic bomb and Barbie, they're both in the <laughs> same. You know, how do you pick between those two? What, they're just not. They're both movies, but there's nothing that's similar about them at all, other than the fact that they're both movies. It's a great point, and it's the problem with any award show is that sometimes you have different categories or different subsets that make no sense collectively. You know. Uh, Looking back, uh, uh, Marissa Tomei won for My Cousin Vinny. It was a very sharp comic performance. And then I'm going to guess that year there may have been others that were much more dramatic and heart-wrenching. How do you compare the two? I mean, it, it's just the nature of the beast. And so I, I agree that those are very, very different films. But at the end of the day, I, I go back to the basics. Did it transport you? Was it mesmerizing? Was it different than other films? Was it smart? Was it Was it well-acted? I mean, I think there are some unifying elements. But yeah, it is hard to compare those two films because they are so dramatically different. Uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, he was in um, The Holdovers and he's nominated. He was unbelievably good in it. But here's here's my problem with, with that. Not that it's a problem, really, but uh, and I don't want to take anything away from the job he did, but he kind of was playing Paul Giamatti, wasn't he? <laughs> 
wasn't too far afield, but who does it better than Paul Giamatti? Yeah. yeah. What, what's funny about his performance is not ha ha funny, but I think he's going to win in part because he's given so many great performances in the past. And there's a, there is a bit of a sentiment to these uh, awards where if an actor hasn't been nominated, hasn't won in the past, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful if X or Y yeah, not yeah. triumph at this time? So I, I think that's it. I mean, look at Bradley Cooper in Maestro, which is available now on Netflix. You could say it's too actorly. You could say it's he's trying so very hard. But by golly, that guy disappears into that role. The, the makeup, the mannerisms, the gestures, the the, the voice. I mean, it yeah. is really a stunning performance. And is that much better than Paul Giamatti on a, on a technical level? Maybe the answer is yeah. Yeah, uh, that's the thing with actors. Um, there are there are there are people out there like uh, Clooney, George Clooney. He he pretty much plays George Clooney in every movie. <laughs> But but a guy like Michael Keaton, who I went to college with and is a friend of mine, um, he um, he's going to do Beetlejuice again, and he's done Beetlejuice mm-hmm. and Mr. Mom and you know everybody you know all the, the Batman and the long list of movies. So um, it, when you're judging the acting, and as at least in the in the context of who's going to be called the best actor this year. Do you have to kind of go with somebody who does what you say Bradley Cooper did? I haven't seen that movie. Well, it's up to the voter. It's a tough one. You know, and I also say that I think that Giamatti's role in that film holds it together. I think it's a better film than Maestro. And I think maybe those come into play as well. Well, you know, Bradley Cooper was terrific. The movie has some issues. And maybe that's enough of a reason to go in a different direction. Listen, everything's subjective. And I think one of the things that's so maddening about a subject you and I talk about a lot, sort of this woke sentiment where you have to check a certain identity box and things like that. Then you add that into the equation. You know, what if it's, you know, Paul Giamatti is a straight white male. What if what if it's they want more diversity in that category? I mean, it just it goes on and on. And uh, hopefully in the, the day you, you, you want the voters just to say, what's the best performance? What's the best picture? And do they get it often right? Or they certainly don't, but they are human and. That's what makes a little bit of the drama for the Oscar night to go on. Yeah, you mentioned the. I was going to ask you about that. The um, the diversity, the rules about diversity. What were those rules, and do they show up in these nominations? It's a long list of rules, and I, and I would actually steer people to go to whatever website characterizes all them together. Part of it is on screen representation, the kind of diversity you would imagine, uh, you know, people of color, different groups, things like that. But I think that if your film doesn't have that on screen, I believe you can also qualify if your crew checks certain boxes as well, or even if the story represents an underrepresented group. It's, <laughs> I'm a harsh critic of it. Uh, Richard Dreyfus is as well, so I'm in good company. Very other actors have spoken out in favor or against because they're afraid to death about it. But, yeah, that's where we are right now. But it isn't just you need people of color on screen more than usual. It, there are different levels of it. There's, pardon me, there's what? Different levels. Oh, different levels, so Like yeah. you said, if it's, you know, it could be on screen, it could be off screen, it could be this, it could be the yeah. theme. So yeah. it's not just one set of rules. Yeah, um, and I... Um, uh, is are, are these movies doing well at the box office? Are people are people did people pay to see the holdovers or Maestro? Well, Maestro was only in limited release because it's mostly on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. The holdovers made, I think, around eighteen million, which is 
fairly light. I think some actually in recent years, the Oscar nominees have done even worse. So I don't think there are a lot of big hits here beyond Barbie and Oppenheimer. They were huge. But looking at Poor Things, that's maybe around 20 or so million. American Fiction is still rolling out. It might have maybe five or six million. So a lot of these films just have a very small audience. And, you know, you're a film guy and you've only seen a few of them. Yeah. And yeah. so just think about the John Q. public and what they've seen and what they haven't seen. Yeah. Um, I saw American Fiction last week. I think you could make some comparisons between that and uh, the holdovers. Not that they the plot was the same or anything, but it's just mm-hmm. you know kind of an ensemble uh, acting, and the, the acting was unbelievably good. But um, and you tell me what you think. I think they tried a little too hard in American fiction. I think the issue I had with the film is that it had a very sharp, funny, satirical bent to it, but then it spent half the movie with the author's family, which I thought was very pedestrian and kind of slowed down the movie itself. So um, I had some issues, but I thought that the the barbs against the sort of the literary world and how they judge people and how they applaud black stereotypes while trying to be woke and awake was rather funny. So I, I thought it was good, but I, I had some minor issues with it. But it's, it's really worth seeing. It's certainly different. And like you said, great acting across the board. Now, Martin Scorsese is uh, nominated, and so is Robert De Niro, and it's not a gangster movie. <laughs> That's right. You just <laughs> Anytime those two work together, there's going to be nominations flowing. I didn't love Killers of the Flower Moon. That's the movie they're both in, obviously. But uh, I, I, I think the Oppenheimer juggernaut will roll and rule on Oscar night, which I believe is March 10th, if I had that correctly. It's not there. Um, I... I I just thought Flower Moon was too long. I thought it was too obvious in storytelling. There's some beautiful craftsmanship in there, and, and Scorsese always does it right. And De Niro is great. He's a great actor. And I, I would maybe, to circle back to an earlier point of yours, there's a bit of De Niro in every one of his characters, too. I mean, he has a, he has a mode. He has a style. He doesn't exactly look like a chameleon, but he's also a great, passionate actor. So uh, we'll see, what, see how, he, how he winds up on the night. Uh, finishing up here with Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com. I have a little, little over a minute left. Is the movie business back? And I'm not talking about Netflix. I'm talking about mm-hmm. theaters. As I, I have noticed crowds, I, I don't, as I said in the beginning, I, I don't watch movies on TV. I, I, some, I, the, I, it just seems to me as almost a sin to watch Oppenheimer on your 50-inch TV in your living room. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I'm- I think the answer is more yes than no. I think it's bounced back better than I expected, given that streaming hit, the pandemic hit. Yeah. And there have been some breakaway films like Super Mario Brothers and Oppenheimer and Barbie uh, that have done just blockbuster business in the old school sense. But I also feel like there's been a lot of signature flops. I think Disney's produced half of them. And I feel like there's good. a lot of films that maybe 10, 20 years ago would have been smashes, just aren't. So it's weird. I, I think that the... I think that the studios need to make it an event, how you need to see this in the theater for reasons X, Y, and Z. And I think the films that have that sense are doing better. And by the way, a recent romantic comedy, Anyone But You, has a lot of legs at the box office. It opened very weakly, and it keeps chugging on. And I think that's a sign to Hollywood. Hey, you know, we'd like to see beautiful people in romantic comedies, boy meets girl, old school. Start making more of them, because I think there's a real appetite for it again. Of course, in that case, it was girl meets girl, wasn't it? Two two women got no, married. No. They had to have the... <laughs> not, not this one. This is Glenn Powell. You know, it's one of the ones I have not seen, but in Sydney Sweeney as well. But, you know, beautiful leads, 
uh, escapist uh, landscapes, you know, yeah. behind them. And I think we like that escapism. We do kind of escape from our world. We're, we're exhausted. We're tired. We're sick of the headlines. Hey, um, it's always good to have you on, uh, Christian, and hope to have you on again. Maybe we'll talk after the, uh, after the awards are handed out. Sounds good. Thanks, Christian. And that's Christian Toto. I'll be right back. I only have a little over a minute left here, and it uh, really doesn't do this story justice. But <laughs> co- it's just tough being a cop these days. This, these the cops in El Paso. They are they now have a new policy where it's called constitutional policing, and they are going to be required when they are in the process of arresting someone to ask them which pronouns they would like to have used and how they how they would how how would you like me re, to refer to you that's that's what you're supposed to ask him so you pick up a guy who's just robbed the bank and he's you know in the getting ready to uh shoot somebody and you arrest him and you have him handcuffed and you say by the way uh i just want to make sure uh what pro- i don't want to hurt your feelings here what what are, what are your pronouns and they worked with a group to get this done in el paso called the Borderland Rainbow Center. And somebody from the Borderland Rainbow Center is saying that, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to, um, we need to respect the pronouns of the perpetrators. That's where, just imagine being a cop. You've been a cop for 10 years in El Paso, Texas, and what you have to deal with, and somebody comes up and tells you that. How quickly would you quit and go anywhere else? Well, I got to go, so I'll see you or talk to you on Monday. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.